0: Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Interim Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health.
1: I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone.
0: Dr. Chan, it's great to be hanging out with you again. It's our weekly chats are very therapeutic for me. Really enjoy them. Today, we have a very enjoyable guest today, Dr. Andrew Saul. Dr. Saul is the Chief Medical Officer of the Providence Community health center here in Providence, Rhode Island, certainly one of the larger community health centers in our state, uh, probably in the country. A very impressive community health center. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the Providence Community Health Center. I do a lot of great work with a lot of good people. Dr. Saul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do?
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I am Andrew Saul. I'm a family physician. And uh, like Dr. McDonald, I kind of grew up in the U.S. Indian Health Service right after residency. Uh, Learned a lot about how to practice uh, medicine in a community and a population on a shoestring budget. Um, When I left the Hopi Reservation after many, many years, I ended up in Flagstaff, Arizona with a community health center. At the time, it was operating like a free clinic. Uh, but it realized quickly that these things called community health centers could be agents for change. We might come back to that later on. Spent about 10 years building up that one. And it included all the small towns on Route 66. If you've seen the movie Cars, you have seen the towns we are practicing medicine in.
0: Mm, uh, that's exactly right.
2: Yeah. And it includes yeah. a small town um, with 5000 men, women and children in a K through 12 grade school. Uh, They lived there year in and year out, and all they had was an urgent care that wouldn't vaccinate the kids. Uh, That small town was Grand Canyon National Park. So we were the first community health center to begin operating an urgent care in a national park. So we took care of 5,000 men, women, and children and 4 million visitors who came in. We were the only community health center with a helipad and also were medical consultants on large animal veterinary uh, issues with the mules going in and out of the canyon. After about 10 years of that, my wife and I moved to Burlington, Vermont. I helped do an MPH in health policy at that time, working at the Community Health Center in Burlington. And then finally, about eight years ago, we came down here to Rhode Island to be part of the Care Transformation Collaborative. I joined the Providence Community Health Center, and it's been an extraordinary journey as we try and get a community health center to shift from reactive care, treating only those who show up, to this concept of population health. How can we possibly build a health system that can take care of everyone, whether they show up or not? Uh, That's my story. I'm sticking to it. And I wanted to thank my wife for joining me on this journey. Without her, none of this would be possible. What would you like to know?
1: Thank you, Dr. Saul. First off, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast here Let's start at the very basics here. You know, I think we eat, live, and breathe uh, primary care. But how would you explain what primary care is to a, a, a layperson who may not know all the nuances of medicine?
2: Right, and and there's a lot of different metaphors and ways to describe it. But it's kind of the foundation of the entire healthcare system, and it is focused heavily on prevention and staying healthy in the first place. Uh, the other key role is to fix common problems that happen commonly. Always plenty of room for specialists. But what happens in the American healthcare system is everything gets fragmented. And so one of the key roles of primary care is to help coordinate it and to be that patient navigator, the patient advocate to help you, the savvy consumer, get maximum value and stay healthy in the first place.
0: You, you did a wonderful job of just describing it. That was, that was great here. One of the things that just dawned on me, though, is not everybody has a primary care provider. Not everyone has a family doctor, you know, pediatrician, family physician, call it, call the person what you will. You know, what do you make of that? Why is that? I mean, I don't think it's as so simple as they don't want one, but what is what is the story there?
2: Well, from the patient viewpoint, okay, not one size doesn't fit all. There is always the educated, savvy consumer who, if you give them a, a book of rules, they will be able to access the healthcare system and do quite well assuming there's transparency in price. But guess what? That's like 10% of the people. 90% of us are either too busy or unaware that we should be doing these preventative things. So as you begin to look at healthcare systems, you have to realize that one size doesn't fit all. And you've got to always reinvent yourself and take a broader approach. So as the patient, do how do I get a primary care? Well, we have big issues with supply and demand. Uh, A lot of the large groups and small practices in the state, they're not taking new patients. So, even if you want one, you might not be able to get one. And even worse, you may not know that you probably need a navigator or an advocate. So, there's a lot of people out there who are in the mindset of, I feel well today, must not be anything wrong. But with a little common sense or education, you know, they might be able to live a healthier, more full life. And now I kind of push back saying, well, if we're going to define a primary care provider. I actually want to say what you really need is a medical home because you don't need me, an MD with a bunch of degrees after, me, after my title, telling you that you shouldn't smoke, should wear a seatbelt, should eat more. You know what? There are other people on our care team who can do that education piece easily, better, quicker, faster. And the other thing to realize is that this concept of a medical home you need to know where you belong, how to access the system when you're ready on your terms. So it's kind of a different way of looking at how we deliver healthcare. Everyone should know where they belong, where to go when they get in trouble. And it sure is nice to have a navigator looking out for you to help you interface with the system.
1: All good, Dr. Saul. Let me ask you this. One question that uh, I get from some younger folks, especially, right, In 20s and 30s, uh, otherwise healthy, no medical problems. For someone in their 20s or 30s, otherwise healthy, no medical problems, do they need a primary care doctor or provider? What would you you say to that?
2: The answer is yes, you need a medical home. You need to know who your person is, who your contact is. Um, and, And the reason is because you never know when you need help until you need help. And with the fractured American healthcare system, whenever there's a problem, whenever the system breaks, whenever someone doesn't know what to do, When they've got a problem, the path of least resistance is to the emergency room. Now we set that up and it's really, really great if you're having a heart attack or a stroke, but the ER was never meant to be the place you go because you don't understand how to access somebody's clinic system. So for us, there's always this continuing bit about educating the patients so that they know that we're here in the evening hours. They know what to do on a Saturday. They know about the answering service. And we built two very large urgent cares here in Providence. We want to give people a place to go. They know this is their home, that on the weekends, if their child has a cold or a fever, they know they can come here instead of going to the emergency room. So that's kind of an expanded concept of what is a medical home.
0: I mean, one thing about emergency departments is they have to see you. It it literally is, you know, a federal law. Um, And and, then they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And thank goodness they are. But it's really often, you know, just not the best place. Um, You know, having seen many crowded emergency departments during the pandemic in particular. I want to just go back to your role at the Providence Community Health Center. You're the chief medical officer at the Providence Community Health Center. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Providence Community Health Center is, you know, you know, maybe what it is and and who does it serve? Tell us a little bit about the Providence Community Health Center story.
2: All right. Well, across the country, there are now 1,400 community health centers. Each one is neighborhood controlled. And what makes them very, very different, we came out of the 60s. We came out of the war on poverty. Whenever you see a community health center anywhere in the country, you have to ask who's in charge. And it's neat because when you see community health center, it means 51% of the board of directors are patients. Just let that soak in. Imagine ExxonMobil if half the board were gas station attendants or lived downstream of the drilling fields. That fundamentally makes you very, very humble, keeps you hungry, keeps you doing grassroots things in the community, keeps you very focused on the people you serve. This community health center is one of the oldest in the country. We are number eight uh, digging through the archives, the eighth oldest in the country. Um, and we were founded in 1968. Uh, We now have 10 offices here in Providence, just about 650 employees, 100 physicians, nurse practitioners, dentists, optometrists, podiatrists, a lot of different people, support staff here. It just spreads out. We've got community health workers, nurse care managers, and this very dynamic outreach approach. So here we are now serving about If you look back one year, 60,000 people. If you look back three years, we have 80,000 people who call us their medical home. That's one in four people here in the city of Providence. And we set out to be neighborhood based. We didn't want to build a giant megaplex and expect everyone to drive. These clinics are usually walkable depending on the neighborhood you live in. And we just opened up a new one right at the junction of Silver Lake and Olneyville, another 36 room facility with an urgent care because... Some people ride buses. In fact, most people ride buses. Not everyone has a car, so we deliberately put these clinics in the neighborhoods where the people can access them. We are the largest community health center in Rhode Island. Uh, There are some other extraordinary FQHCs right here in this state. I give them all a shout out if the time permitted. Uh, but again, there are 1,400 across the country, and I've been honored to work at three in my career, and I am honored to serve as chief medical officer of this bunch here. Um, they are extraordinary.
1: Dr. So let me ask you this. One question that we hear a lot from the community is people just have trouble getting into primary care. You know, they call around to different clinics, and it's like six months, you know, seven months before they can see you for a new primary care intake. A lot of people out there are looking uh, what are your experiences on that? Is that a, a real problem? Are there enough primary care providers out there? Uh, is this a real problem? What do we need to do to fix access and and get everyone a primary care provider, as you mentioned that we
2: all should have? I, I see you and I raise you one. Because here's what's gone on in America since World War II, is that we've got this concept of the God in the white coat. Be it an MD, a DO, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, my advocate, my ally is going to be this person who meets with me one-on-one and we spend 15 minutes and they will address every concern I have, preventative and put out, you know, fixed problems. They have to be the social worker, the counselor, the listener. They, they're they expected to do all this stuff in 15 minutes and then repeat it 24 to 30 times a day. And we wonder why uh, clinicians are burning out and we wonder why nobody wants to go into primary care Everyone loves it, but man, it's really hard to be a social worker and all these things all at once. So even if I took every physician graduating, every nurse practitioner, every PA, and put them into primary care, we could not scale this model up to take care of 350 million Americans. It just really wouldn't work. And so our response to this is, well, let's reinvent primary care. And what we started doing is shifting to this team concept. Where I, the physician, I'm really good at solving very, very complex problems and conducting the orchestra. I'm not very good at teaching insulin and diabetes. I mean, I know how to do counseling for anxiety and depression, but on my team, I've got a behavioralist who knows how to do it better than me. And so I can hand off to that person. I've got a dedicated RN who can do all the mammograms and the flu shots and all those things we're supposed to be remembering to do, but I'm going from crisis to crisis solving problems. I can let my nurse handle the routine things, such as, oh, and order a colonoscopy, oh, and get a mammogram. So we're kind of taking this concept of what is primary care and we're moving towards what's called team care. So we're trying to get the right resources to the right person at the right time. And more importantly, it can decrease burnout because I don't have to be the social worker every time. I've got a dedicated team of people who are able to help me do that better.
0: You really remind me that it is a team sport. You know, it's interesting, like I've been a doctor for 32 years now. And one of the things I just noticed in my career is, in the beginning of my career, I really did do everything. And it's just different now, because I have a lot of people who just help me do everything. Um, and it was interesting, because I think back to when I was doing I was drawing the blood, I was doing everything for the baby. And it's just quite frankly, better when you have other people help you and I want to pivot our conversation a little bit to redesigning the primary care model and talk a little bit about population health it's something you've talked to us about before in other settings and you know you're an advocate for this can you tell us a little bit about what redesigning primary care and with an emphasis on population health might look like because it's something that I'm very interested in
2: this could be 20 podcasts but I'll, I'll take the brief approach Since World War II, America has been doing what's called fee for service. You only get paid if somebody shows up and you deliver an office visit. Well, that's great, but you're kind of forcing the whole healthcare system to churn and go fast and focus on short problems. And it doesn't give you that wraparound comprehensive approach that you need. But in order to add integrated behavioral health, clinical pharmacy, nurse care management, the traditional model of how we pay doctors doesn't work. And so we're not talking about ACOs, AEs, different ways to do this. And what that really does for the first time ever, at least in the last hundred years, everyone who's been talking about population health, how do, you know, my zip code predicts my health, the social determinants drive uh, despair and poverty and make health outcomes worse. We had no way to address that. But now as we're dabbling in these things called ACOs, The insurance companies are coming to us saying, here's 50,000 people. They should cost about this much, but if you keep them really, really healthy, we will let you share in the savings. What that allows us to do is escape that cycle of you only get paid for those you see, and with the dollars you get, you can focus on the population at large. And one of our trick questions that I ask every medical student is this, who's more important, the patient who shows up or the patient who's missing the appointment? The answers are equally important. And so anything we do to redesign this has to approach those who show up, those who don't. And you always have to ask, why isn't the person there? And that, of course, brings up the question of, do they have a car? Do they have transportation? Do they understand? Is there cultural literacy? So for me, population health has always been about doing the right thing to maximize good. But for the first time ever in the healthcare system, they're saying, okay, here's a whole lot of people Keep this population healthy, whether they show up or not. And so, suddenly, you do things like nurse care management, community health workers. The most important thing we've done in 5,000 years of human history is turn your aunt loose. You know, when the village takes care of itself, it's just dynamic. If I'm knocking on your door saying, vaccinate your baby, people freak out. There's an old, bald haired white guy knocking on your door saying, vaccinate your baby. When it's your aunt who speaks your language saying, vaccinate your baby, you can't say no. That's community health workers. And for 5,000 years, that's what really works. And in this new model, we can shift and we say, oh, the physician can take care of the highly complex people, but I need an army of community health workers to tear down the walls of the clinic and move out in the community and start talking about diabetes prevention, exercise, eat healthy, wear a seatbelt, safe sex, family planning, and a 1,001 other things, that's how you improve population
1: health. Dr. Shaw, let me ask you this. This sounds uh, amazing, and certainly with my public health hat on, it sounds exactly what you want to do. Uh, this is a bit of a paradigm shift, as you mentioned, from the fee-for-service, you know, typical payment models, from the one-on-one you know, physician in the white coat stethoscope. Uh, you are trying to do this at Providence Community Health Center. Let me ask you this, is it working?
2: Yes. I'm happy to say it's working. Uh, we did proof of concept in the first couple of years. There's of course 20,000 different areas to improve it and make it better. But right now we have to, we're still, as they say, standing in two canoes and I've got two canoes pointing different directions. I still need to make certain there's face-to-face visits to help keep the lights on, but we're doing this really dynamic population health efforts. Does it work? Well, for quality, Imagine every imaginable barrier to the social determinants of health for inner city people who have, you know, live in poverty, language, no car, uh, you name it. Our children by age two are vaccinated in the 90th percentile in the nation. So right here in Providence, one of the best baby vaccination states in the country here in the cities worth the 90th percentile. Uh, our people with diabetes and hypertension are in the 75th percentile nationwide for overall care. So this model works. Uh, as we say, it's not good enough to be good. We have to be the best. We're obsessed with being the best, regardless of the ability to pay, addressing it through the lens of structural racism and the social determinants of health. Now, there's a, there's a mission statement. I'd turn the camera around and show it to you. It's on the wall. That's what guides us.
0: I really love the way you say that. I mean, I've been a big fan of community health centers for a long time, and they've changed over the decades. You know, what was once a place of care of last resort is really becoming, I think, the leading edge of primary care. You know, it's, and one of the things about federally qualified community health centers that I really resonate with as a state health director is we have common goals. We are very aligned with what we're trying to do. You know, as a health department, we want to keep the population healthy, and we love to see these quality indicators. Community health centers have the same goals. And it's really interesting when you look about it. It's like part of the whole shift from fee for services, you know, we're moving from a sickness system in the United States to a wellness system in the United States. It's taking us far too long to get their other countries figure this out quite some time ago, but it really underscores this concept I, I refer to as alignment, where, you know, federally qualified community health centers really are incentivized to keep people healthy. And if the payment systems follow that path where we're really paying to keep your patients healthy, that's an incentive that everybody resonates with. And I think, you know, you underscore underscore it's, it's team-based care. One of the things I want to shift our conversation to is, you know, it's funny, we don't have to talk about the pandemic in every episode, but it just seems to come up because it's in every life, but I know there was challenges for primary care during the pandemic. And again, we could spend a whole hour talking about it. We won't give me a couple of, couple of challenges, just maybe two challenges that you guys faced at Providence community health center with primary care. Just be curious what you noticed.
2: Um, My, my favorite uh, incident learning curve was the day that the Rhode Island national guard, God bless them, began doing testing for COVID out of twin rivers casino amazing people. We worked hard with them. Uh, And it was somebody on my team who said, that's great. We're doing car-based testing. Everyone said, that's great. And then this person said, but if we only test people with cars, then only those with cars will be tested. And so within 24 hours, we worked with the guard and we set up one of the first walk-through, drive-through sites in South Providence so that people could basically walk up and be tested. And and we got to help launch that. It basically is a barber chair in a tent and it worked, and then the Rhode Island National Guard disseminated that, that model out to the other states. That that just goes back to the idea that one size doesn't fit all. And one of our main assumptions was car-based testing, good, most people have a car. Well, that's not how it goes. Also lessons learned out of the pandemic, the ability to do point-of-care testing rapidly uh, was always in mind, and those structures that we built Uh, We had these aging clinics. Some of our clinics are 40, 50 years old. They had side doors. They had negative pressure rooms because we used to treat a lot of tuberculosis with new American populations. It wasn't hard for us to basically ramp up our negative pressure capacity to safely screen and treat people with hot flu-like symptoms. And today, among the 10 clinics, we have 24 negative pressure rooms and rapid testing ability for flu and COVID and a few other things as well. So able to harness that historical nature and then turn it into something for the 21st century. So dang proud to be here. <laughs> something I th- interesting you mentioned earlier, um, it's really hard to get new patients in, but we are taking new patients. And one of the greatest things I ever hear is when somebody with Blue Cross or United shows up saying, can I even come here? The answer is yes. And what we find is that because we offer extended hours, evening hours, urgent care, Saturdays, and have really cool you know, docs who love to be on a first name basis, we actually draw a lot of people with commercial insurance. And any nickels we make over there, we use to offset the care for the uninsured. So our mission has always been to the be uninsured. We thrive in this insane market that's heavily Medicaid and Medicare. And if somebody with commercial insurance comes here, and yes, we're taking new patients, All that revenue goes to help somebody else who may not be able to pay full price. So that is the highest thing I saw in the pandemic is people are really happy to come see bright, sunny buildings and have first name basis relationships with entire healthcare teams.
1: Dr. Shaw, let me ask you this. Uh, Has anything positive come out of the pandemic related to uh, your clinical setting, community clinics, PCHC,
2: anything positive? Lots came out that were positive Uh, on the glamorous side, I don't know if we call it glamorous, our capabilities to do video visits and telephonic and remote work just exponentially jumped. And that's been extraordinary. Most of our visits now are back to the old face-to-face, but there are certain subsets of people who just can't really tolerate a big noisy clinic. So our behavioral health department is doing a lot of visits either remotely, virtually, or on the phone. This has been a niche that's opened up that everyone said, oh, you mean if I call and check on that person who's stressed out all the time, they're more calm, they're happier, they know they're okay, and they're less likely to use the ER? Heck, we should be calling these people every day. Uh, Doesn't mean you should bill for it, but the idea of telemedicine here uh, made a quantum leap. And for us, because we have nephrology, rheumatology, and all these specialists in optometry and podiatry, a doctor in the Olneyville neighborhood can call up an optometrist over at Prairie Avenue and say, hey, I've got a patient with a painful red eye. Can you see them right now? They're like, yeah, turn the camera on. Uh, And then we'll use Lyft or Uber to move the patient from point A to point B. So that's the glamorous side of the pandemic. Behind the scenes part. Our ability to track any condition by race, ethnicity, gender, zip code, also took a quantum jump. You can't identify a disparity or address a healthcare disparity if you can't track it or measure it. And we were already building these systems, but as the pandemic broke on us, we were able to pull data from current care, our state health information exchange, pull in lab data, crosswalk, all that by race and ethnicity, and we early on identified that the pandemic was really, really bad in Olneyville and Central Falls and these other neighborhoods. Um, so it became part of the state surveillance system, uh, seeing just how bad it was by race and ethnicity. So I've got to give a shout out to everybody at the Rhode Island State Lab. You guys are extraordinary. Thank you for helping us pull this off. And of course, Current Care, uh, Neil Sarkar and his team, they helped us build this data bridge that brought so much good out of chaos.
0: A good note to end on, by the way, at our time has gone by much too quickly, but it's been wonderful to talk a little bit about the Province Community Health Center, really a little bit about future systems of care, how primary care is changing and, and will just only get to be more of a team-based um, experience, really more focused on the patient. One of our traditions at Public Health Out Loud is to end with the final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today's episode?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you, Dr. Saul, so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a fascinating discussion. In closing, I want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. Here it is uh, from Buddha. Whatever words we utter should be chosen with care for people will hear them and be influenced by them for good or ill. Thank you all and be well.
0: I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good, keep up the great.